when you're putting a human being in space, everything is a problem. Every single natural process that can be taken for granted down here cannot be in space and has to be appropriated and accounted for and controlled by Father Science. And that list becomes quite long. Greetings, future fossils. This is your host, Michael Garfield, welcoming you to another episode of the podcast that explores our place in time. I'm sure most of you have heard the quote attributed to Mark Twain, that history doesn't repeat itself, but it rhymes. A fabulous example of this is in the richly symbolic, profound, and poetic film Blade Runner 2049, a film that sinks its roots deep into the mythology and religions of world culture to contemporize the millennia-old struggle between Earth Mother and Sky Father as worshipped by body-embracing nature mystics on the one hand and body-denying patriarchal scientific control fetishists on the other And you are in for a treat today because taking us on a tour of this rich tangle of allusions and references is independent culture critic John David Ebert, author of 26 books and co-founder of the blog Cultural Discourse. John's got one of these rare minds that is not only extremely literate in the texts and artworks of antiquity, but also has the ability to draw patterns and form connections and reveal the underlying order of the seemingly chaotic flows of history. And he is a great guy to have on hand for a conversation about how 2049 helps us process the timeless and ever-evolving question of human origins, nature, and destiny in a way that, like all of the best science fiction, turns our investigations of the future back on ourselves and helps us find or make the soul that we have lost in the modern age. But first, I want to take a moment to thank and praise the five new Patreon supporters that signed up this week. Fred Meeks, Kelsey Bornstein, James Wilton, Jacob Amen, and Ismarie Sosa. All of you are so, so appreciated, and I'm super glad to have you on board the active roster of what I've started to think of as the Decentralized Intelligence Agency. The Decentralized Intelligence Agency, of course, started four billion years ago and is a literal conspiracy or breathing together in that all life on Earth participates in the respiratory regulation of our atmosphere. Yes, indeed, every single one of you listening to this is in fact a witting or unwitting agent of the Decentralized Intelligence Agency, an organization so vast and complex that its motives remain a mystery to everyone. Whether the DCIA's ultimate goal is to boot up a cosmos-spanning post-biological singularity, or simply to Sherpa for entropy as we run it all down the drain, I'm honored and delighted that there are 105 of you who have made the decision to support my public and transparent efforts to assist the DCIA, as best I understand it, by passing down an archive of inspiring, soulful, and intelligent, creative, playful, and irreverent discussions about our role in the cosmos and how we can be good ancestors. For all of you out there not chipping in two or five bucks a month on Patreon, that's totally okay. 
I'm very grateful that you're listening. And there is tons of free stuff for you, whether you subscribe or not, at patreon.com slash Michael Garfield. I'm going to be putting up some new original music this week, as well as a conversation on the future of sex and human relationships that I just gave last weekend at Flux Festival in Arkansas. (laughs) I think anybody who likes this episode and wants to go a little deeper will appreciate that one. It got weird. Also, I promised everybody that after 100 subscribers, I was going to get cracking on a psychedelic coloring book which I have decided I'm going to release in serial PDF form to Patreon supporters to vote on their favorite pages before I whittle it all down for a later public release. I'm also going to drop some more early release episodes on y'all here soon, including one with io9.com futurist George Dvorsky, who's somebody I've been wanting to connect with for years, and that was a very interesting conversation. And that's all for now. I want to thank all 63 of you who've rated and reviewed this show on iTunes. Makes a huge difference in my ability to convince high-profile guests as well as turn on folks who may one day be lifelong friends. In fact, the Future Fossils community and conversation is really good already. We have a Facebook discussion group. There's about a thousand of us in there sharing cool links and getting into it every day. If you have any questions or suggestions for me personally, you can reach me at futurefossilspodcast at gmail.com. All right, everybody. Welcome John David Ebert to Future Fossils Podcast. It is an absolute treat to have you on Future Fossils. Welcome aboard. Thank you for having me, Michael. I appreciate it. Yeah, and and you know, as as a scholar critic who has devoted so much of your career to exploring the way that film and entertainment media help us process the way that we understand the changing nature of humanity in this time. I think you're you're really uh excellent candidate for inclusion in the, the digital archives so i'm glad to hear that i think that maybe the, the best place to start is with your recent review of blade runner 2049 because i feel like that that brings together so many of these these uh issues of the way that the the pre-modern is sort of transfigured and and redisplayed in the postmodern world and these these issues that we're having with technology and reproduction and i don't know i just i guess maybe the best place to start would be to ask why these issues have your attention and how you, how you came around to writing about this stuff well i mean <clears throat> first of all i should say that i, I think that uh, i know the blade runner film didn't do well at the box office uh, in imitation of its predecessor so that's no sign of whether it's good or bad but i thought it was an absolutely stunning film i, I just I was completely thrilled by it most of the sequels uh, that we've had and prequels and so forth, Ridley Scott's Prometheus films and so forth, has been kind of mediocre. <clears throat> so I had low expectations going in. I'd seen all of Denis Villeneuve's films, and he's very good at handling. <clears throat> I don't think he's made a bad film. He's he's very good at handling human emotions. And I think The Arrival was his first science fiction film, if I recall. So I wasn't quite sure that he was the right director. I, I knew he would be good for the, the characters, 
I wasn't sure if he could handle the kind of visual landscape that uh, come up with something worthy to what Ridley Scott had achieved in the original Blade Runner in 1982. But I think he did. And I think one of the things about it is that the images are so art savvy. There, There's a lot of, uh, you know, I wrote a book about contemporary art called Art After Metaphysics, in which I explored the landscape of contemporary artists, uh, everyone from Damien Hirst to Anish Kapoor to Odd Nedrum, Joseph Boyce, and all those guys. And I saw a lot of echoes of their work in the film, in the visual landscapes of the film. You know, you get the opening shot of these bone white agro-industrial complexes that imitate a sort of drone scanning shot from above that reminds me of the photographs of Edward Bertinsky, for instance, and stuff like that. I mean, the, the film is, is very image sophisticated and, and, and art savvy. And I thought that that was a surprise, number one. And number two, I thought that the themes of the film develop the themes of the first film. The first film had been about uh, what is it that makes us human? That was the question that the film asked. Many reviewers and critics missed that. They were dazzled by the the sparkling uh, lights of uh, Ridley Scott's wonderful updating of Fritz Lang's Metropolis as the modern, you know, sort of decadent L.A. archaeopaleo city that's just completely become the exoskeleton for the entire planet. And nature has dissolved on the inside of this. So as McLuhan used to say, when Sputnik went around the planet, the planet has now been encased on the inside of technology for the first time in human history. So there is no nature anymore. And this was a theme that I wrote about in my book, The Age of Catastrophe, that there's no such thing as a natural catastrophe anymore because almost all of them can in some way be linked to human global industrial technology, disrupting ecosystems, uh, pumping excess CO2 into the atmosphere and greenhouse gases, rising global temperatures and sea levels. All of that contributes to not only hurricanes, but earthquakes as well, since the rising sea levels put new pressures on tectonic plates that cause earthquakes. And also things like the uh, the earthquake that hit China in, uh, what was it, 2008, where they figured out that it was the result of the building of the gigantic Three Gorges Dam, putting pressure on fault lines there. So we're getting man-made earthquakes now. So what does it mean to, to speak of nature now in this environment that's been completely technologically managed or mismanaged by the human being in the world, the human mode of being in the world as a techno being, which seems to be the mode that we excel at, being in the world as a, as a technological being. And I just thought the new Blade Runner film captured all of this in a very compressed, visually poetic way. So it captured my imagination. So yeah, you got this this history of work. You're now the author of what, is it eight eight books now? Or has it has that number gone up? 26. Good grief. So that, okay, so the, the article on your expungement from Wikipedia is actually rather old. I, yeah, uh, somebody needs to go in there and, and put in and just <laughs> upload a new one. It's, yeah, it's completely ridiculous. <laughs> I apologize because I'm actually, I am, I am a, a latecomer to your work, but I've, I've just soaked up like soup with the last piece of bread. I've soaked up everything. <laughs> I've, I've read of your stuff because... This issue, this issue of the encasement, like the ensconcement of nature with technology and us moving out of this modern construction of nature as that which lies beyond the boundary, the membrane of the city wall, that that seems to cast us back into a kind of digital wilderness where the original constructions of culture and nature as much more folded over into one another are are still alive and well 
And, you know, you've spoken elsewhere in your work about the way that the old gods repressed by modernity are being sort of reconstructed in a, in a fallen form in our technological urgings, you know, what Eric Davis calls like a technostic project of materializing and concretizing these, these spiritual urges and mythical figures. So it seems like, you know, in your work, there's a strong thread that we can look to the ancient world and look to antiquity and, and this sort of archaic human relationship with the cosmos for some indication of our human experience when the, uh, the tower of our global project starts to crumble. How do you see that coming together, I guess? Um, well, that's a, I mean, or how do you want to riff on that? <laughs> we could take it anywhere. What, what angle do we want to take? I mean, mm-hmm. um, you know, it's one of the things that, you know, like McLuhan used to say that the environment that comes along is always invisible. The fish can't see the water that it's swimming in. And uh, so every new technology that comes along always creates a new environment. And that environment is invisible, but it's made visible by the poets and the artists in their work. That's their job is to sort of pick up uh, the subliminal information that has slipped below the radar of perception and visualize it some way, usually in imagistic form. For instance, the new environment in the 17th century was that of infinite space because the macrospheres that had contained Western civilization, we recall the whirling Ptolemaic cosmology of spheres, within spheres, within spheres that encase the earth at the center of the universe in a protective uterine macro shell. And these spheres, as they moved, sometimes they were turned by angels. In some theories, they, they just simply were made of an essence, a fifth essence, which Aristotle called the quint essence, the fifth essence, uh, fifth after earth, air, fire, and water, was its propensity was simply to turn with natural circular motion. So these spheres just whirled by themselves and they carried the planets along with them like little air pockets inside giant crystalline bubbles. All that collapsed, of course, um, starting with Copernicus and Tycho Brahe and Galileo. All that collapsed, that comforting macrosphere collapsed, and we went from the closed comforting universe to the open universe, which the Dutch seemed to greet in their art with open arms. And so uh, in Dutch 17th century art, we get for the first time really the experience of stepping out on this planet into an unenclosed, unprotected space. And so you get these gigantic Dutch canvases where, you know, the, the, the sky takes up 90% of the painting and there's a little strip of land at the bottom. So, the, you know, the Dutch are making visible the new experience of infinite space and its brand new possibilities, which are simultaneously crackling and resonating in the neurons of mathematicians at the same time, like Leibniz and Newton, who are discovering infinitesimal calculus the possibility of, you know, cracking open infinity with a mathematical equation. All these guys are sparking onto all of this that eventually leads into, in the 19th century, into thermodynamics and the creation of uh, steam engines and com- internal combustion engines. And, on the, of course, the internal combustion engines suck up the fossil fuels that then that very atmosphere that was open now grows a new enclosure with the greenhouse gases that are exuded by the very thing that the new cosmology made possible. Every new cosmology makes new machines possible. And so with the combustion engine coming in, you get all these outgassing, rising of CO2, greenhouse gases that have now put a dome around the planet. Once again, only this time, it's a man-made dome as the result of an exudation from uh, CO2 
fumes. The point I was going to get to was that if you look at somebody like a contemporary artist like H.R. Giger, who, who just died, for instance, in a similar way to where the Dutch experienced infinite space, his canvases are made up of pure machinery, machinery um, intermixed with the human anatomy. And the entire canvas is pure machinery. So he's really painting the exoskeleton of technology that has captured all of us and that has sort of become you know, psychologically inextricable from the sort of mother plasma of our minds in an unconscious way that we're not even aware of. Machines are so much a part of our physical anatomy as well as our psychological anatomies that it really is a kind of biomechanical landscape that's come into being that Giger was spent his career three or four decades making visible in his work. So, I, you know, that's sort of my riff on what you're talking about here in terms of the way these technologies reshape cosmologies that then feed back in to make new technologies possible that then create new catastrophes. And uh, the poets and the artists, meanwhile, are tracking all of this with their invisible antennae and making it all visible in works of art, such as the paintings of H.R. Giger or films like the new Blade Runner movie. It's interesting that both of these these films, the new Alien prequels and the Blade Runner sequel, are explicitly exploring the issue of the mechanization of human reproduction and that we've we've right. decided after all this time that that now is the time after years of of a let, letting this sort of simmer in a hazy dystopian future dream that now we're finally all in agreement that we're living science fiction in the everyday and that these issues seem to need to be brought back into focus in, in Alien Covenant, you have the ship full of human embryos, this like seed ship. That, that It makes clear that all of the human characters of this film are actually domesticated endosymbionts within the technological edifice that is actually doing all of the stuff now. And Scott made that super clear when he made David, the <coughs> android, the star of that film. And then you're talking about the enclosure of the planet and technology. And in Blade Runner 2049... When Deckard is captured by love and he asks where she's taking him and she says home, meaning the off-world colonies, meaning that like it's this right. it's right. this sense that that Earth is this sort of like failed aquarium now within that machine and that so and delegitimized it, yeah, by all the new <laughs> The Earth has become the biomechanical landscape of LV-426 in the original Alien film. So, I mean, it's just, what is the... <laughs> Very clearly, science fiction is always a, you know, a projection of what we're wrestling with now. But it's so obvious what the shadow, what the darkness of this is. Where is the, uh, the transcendent or luminous entering this story in terms of the, the shape of this transformation that we're undergoing. Can H.R. Giger's paintings be considered, I don't know, heavenly at all? Can that, can that hellish quality be transmuted? No, I don't think, not in Giger. His, his, his archetype is not uh, transcendental heavenly. It's, it's very earthly. It's very imminental. It's very bodily. It's definitely the earth archetype intertwined with the machine archetype. I think we would have to look at other artists for the transcendent coming in. You know, somebody like the artist who did Roden Crater out here in Flagstaff, who does these wonderful skies, open images to the sky in his architectural works that allow the transcendent to come pouring down through. I mean, if you look at uh, contemporary artists like that, you get a definite sense for the transcendent coming in. But on the other hand, the transcendent used to be made manifest through myth and technology 
as it's developed, as it's gone along, has actually literalized mythology. I think what we're seeing now in talking about appropriating the powers of the mother, the great mother, to create, we've got the archetype of father science. And father science came in rather than mother earth. Mother earth is the great archetype of what Peter Sloterdijk called the pre-metaphysical age. The pre-metaphysical age is the age that goes down to Plato in which being in the world meant being in the body of the great mother. And uh, you get all these, all the basic mythological religions were based on the worship of her vulva, its creative powers, her breasts with the milk that gave nourishment. And it was the image of the earth itself incarnate in human form. But then with the metaphysical age that Heidegger demarcated, starting with Plato and Aristotle, in which being and becoming became separate, because up to that point, being, and being is that sort of metaphysical principle in which it means to be in the world in a certain way that resonates. Uh, and poets and artists are tuning into that resonant aspect of being. Prior to that, it had been imminent. It had been in the earth, in the trees, in the mountains and hills. Then with Plato, it's fallen. Being becomes something up there that the soul can remember and recall. It's distant now. It's, there's a, there's, you can see there's an analogical divorce that's going on there that marks a new epoch, which Heidegger, I think, right on designated as the metaphysical age with him and Aristotle. And then you get a shift at that point to father, the, the powers of the, what I call the paternal vulva, where the vulva shifts from the female genitals to the inside of the human brain, especially the masculine brain, in which you get images like Zeus giving birth to Athena, or uh, Yahweh having to give birth to Eve by Adam giving birth to Eve, uh, Yahweh pulling a rib out of his side. Women give birth to men, not the other way around. But here there's been an appropriation. And it's happening simultaneously amongst the Greeks and the Hebrews at the same time. And so uh, the logos becomes God's power of the resonant word to create using the power of the word. And so philosophy comes in. Philosophy comes in as a birth of the masculine mind. It's a masculine appropriation. There's no question about it. There's a reason why it emerged in 5th century Athens or 6th century when, when it did. It's a shifting of the powers. And so you get father science appropriating the powers of the female that eventually leads, as you track it over the millennia and the centuries, to the rise of our scientific civilization that we've inherited from the Greeks, picked up and transformed into the appropriation of the powers of the mother by the father to create machines. And eventually that, that leads, of course, back to where it started with how do we create life now? So we've mastered the creation of all of these other possibilities using the powers of father science and an alien covenant that that image is perfect of father science when David pulls open the drawer and there are all these little round dishes with these little frozen embryos or whatever they are, eggs or sperm or what. I mean, that's that's it. That's the image of the paternal vulva of the metaphysical age that has been internalized and appropriated by father science. He's going to take over the powers that the earth once had, the protogenetic life force, and put them on the inside of a laboratory. And this has already happened. We know it's going to happen. We know humans are going to be cloned. It's an inevitability. And so this seems to be the ultimate end goal and telos of all this is, is for the powers of science to appropriate the powers of the woman, create life. And then Blade Runner, I think both films are prescient about all this. They're, they're already tuning into these themes and exploring what we know is going to happen. Once these human beings are created in the laboratory, can we still assign to them the ontological status of human? 
And if we can't, in Blade Runner, they're given a different ontological status by designating them as replicants. And replicants are not human because they don't have souls. In other words, they don't have an interiority. So note that the Voight-Kampff test in the first film that's used to designate the difference between a real human and a fake one is used to focus on the eye, the eye is the window to the soul, so they zero in on the eye, and they ask emotionally toned questions to try and see if they can elicit a blush response, a, a human response. It's like they're pounding on a wall to find whether it's hollow or not. And they do that through asking these questions. If certain mammalian emotions you know, come up, then this obviously is not a replicant. But, so it's defining the human being in that film in terms of whether he's or she has a soul, an interiority, something that's got memory and is has genuine access to memory in the past and the temporal flow and has uh, emotional complexities. And that's how they differentiate in that film. That's why they're trashing uh, these inauthentic humans. Uh, they're delegitimizing them because they're inauthentic. They've been produced in a lab. And so it's about a quest for what it is that makes us human. So that's sort of my riff on, on that. That's the direction I would take that in. Yeah, the Voight yeah, that has, has, that, has that line. Is, how do you feel about your mother? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's like that. That's the because yeah. that's you know that's going to be where the most uh, profound emotions are going to lie. Yeah, so we're we're at this point where we're in the process of appropriating the reproductive mysteries from the mother, and uh, you elicit this in your conversation in the Blade Runner twenty forty nine review in talking about we finally get to see the birth of a replicant in yeah, twenty forty nine like the, the, the sandwich pouch in the sky. And it could have been done any way possible. I expected it to be like the X-Files where you got bodies floating in green vats. But he, the, Villeneuve did it right. It's the, because this is Father Sky is Father Science, and it's birth from above, not from the earth from below. And that's a perfect image of that Father Science is Father Sky, Zeus, for instance, the great thunder hurler, giving birth from above downwards. And he's got a perfect Neander Wallace is essentially, you know, Zeus, or he would have been in Babylonian cosmology, he would have been Enki, the lord of the watery abyss, whose throne sits on the watery abyss, the Apsu, and gives birth to, he creates humans. Enki is the creator god. He's the one who created the first humans. He's the god with all the ideas. And he's already, even though Enki is extraordinarily ancient, possibly going back to 5000 BC, um, He's already sort of a figure that's looking ahead to this paternal vulva, the, the appropriation that takes place many centuries later by the masculine elite. There's an interesting tie in there because I went on a, a kind of a research trip earlier this year exploring the peacock angel Melek Taus and of the, the Yazidi tradition and, and how there seems to be this relationship between Enki as the creator of human beings and this Gnostic suggestion that the demiurge, you know, this being that we look to as the creator is actually the, the, the sort of false or apparent creator. And so right. you see this, this theme across right. world traditions. It's putting Neander Wallace and David the Android in this very luciferic role as the sort of shunned inheritor of that creative responsibility. But I don't know. So I, I guess listening to you talk about all this stuff, there is a very clear differentiation that we carry from antiquity into contemporary life between earth and sky, masculine, feminine. And I wonder 
In the sense that these are embodied metaphors that are like reinforced by our location in a gravity well. If you think that this is the kind of stuff that we're going to carry on with us as we move out into orbit and beyond, or what, in what ways these correlations will start to fail us in zero gravity, and, and we may look beyond this kind of simple binary categorization as we move into a, a more open three-dimensional <laughs> space that we were talking about, the Dutch reveling in the, the new open environment of ocean-going global economic system. Yeah, I, you know, I have my doubts about the colonization of other planets and leaving the Earth because of the proliferation of pollution in the exosphere from satellites. I think for the first time ever, I wrote about this in my book, The Age of Catastrophe. There was two satellites collided in the exosphere in, I think, 2009, it was, or 2010, right in there. Hardly anyone heard about it, but they collided and they sent debris scattering everywhere. Just like in the movie Gravity, which I think uh, ca captured it perfectly, the, the problems that as the space age goes along, it's generating pollution that's now in orbit around the Earth. And these tiny little particles are, it, it only takes one small thing to bring down a gigantic system like the space shuttle, like the, the second uh, space shuttle that exploded was it the Columbia or the Challenger? The Columbia the, was number two. Yeah, the second one, you know, it was just a, a piece of foam rubber that punched a hole as it was lifting off, that then when it came back, the gases ran right into that hole and blew the whole thing up. And NASA at first couldn't believe. They said, there's no way that a two pound piece of foam rubber could have brought down the space shuttle. That's not possible. Turns out that it is possible. So these uh, sort of being in the world colonization experiments are extremely fragile environments. They're man-made and they involve a complete attempt because you have to replicate Father Science, then, and his appropriative powers, has to replicate gravity, uh, some kind of artificial gravity, has to replicate oxygen, uh, the atmosphere, the, the very breathability of the atmosphere is brought into question. All the things which we take for granted as privileged beings walking along the surface of the Earth, all that has to be bracketed when you're putting a human being in space. Everything is a problem. Every single natural process that can be taken for granted down here cannot be in space and has to be appropriated and accounted for and controlled by Father Science. And that list becomes quite long. And uh, <laughs> we, can certainly, we can certainly do it, you know, to send people out into orbit or send them to the moon or so forth. I have doubts about a space age getting up off the ground in which there's a way to evade things like what happened to uh, Columbia. Just one small thing. That's that's it. I mean, the, it's like chaos theory with the tiny little butterfly flapping its wings, and then it causes chaos elsewhere. I mean, it's it's asymmetric. The cause and the effect ratio of what can go wrong is just increased exponentially. So, I have my doubts. That's uh, like uh, in Jurassic Park, item one fifty nine on the bug list. You know, mm -hmm. because that's the, exactly what they're doing in that film is they're trying to reproduce the entire prehistoric environment in an amusement park. You know, and so. I always took that film as a really excellent example. Which film are we talking about? In, the original Jurassic Park. Oh, I see. Okay. Yeah, Jurassic that one. Just it all goes back to Jurassic Park for me. For some reason, yeah. it's it just that's a good analogy too. Yeah, that's... because that one, incidentally, it was a, a film that was originally intended as an amusement park ride before it was even intended as a film. Oh, that, is it? Really? Yeah, that Crichton and Spielberg got together and discussed making it a ride even before they agreed to opt on it as a movie. Exactly, because you get, you get into this whole thing about the evolution of media and how, as you said in, in the interview on, on uh, giant people and tiny worlds, that 
in the art in the age of metaphysics and then art after the age of metaphysics and you get this this competition of new media forms and yeah. that you know you you start to see the original art forms are sort of i wouldn't say uh irrelevant but less capable of presenting a a like sufficiently complex processing or management of of our situation and so like so it, it almost seems like virtual reality as uh like established by opera and then later amusement parks is taking over as like a full sensory enclosure of the human experience but that's a total tangent feel free to address it or not i don't know yeah i should put a fun footnote here for nerds and stuff that uh there's jurassic park and then in a certain sense it's a rewrite of Crichton's earlier film not a novel of westworld which came out in what 72 or three something like that yeah, 73. Where yeah they, they create theme parks and they're sort of taking history just like Disney does, as Thompson remarks in his books, and, and spatializing it, putting historical temporal epochs that would have been chronological, they're now simultaneously occupying the same space, and then problems that they'd have to fix are the robots. And of course, the robots go wrong. They become something that can't be controlled, and they become the problem in that film, whereas in Jurassic Park, Crichton rewrites that scenario, but now it's the, the powers of the Earth that are being appropriated genetically, and that, and of course, when you're dealing with the powers of the earth, I mean, this this is a creative little ball that we're on here. It's got its own programs and its own sentience and its own life forces that evade capture like snakes, you know, squiggling away out of Yahweh's, you know, Yahweh wants to be the Lord on the throne and overthrow all the dragons and consign them to Tartarus. Uh, but they'd always find a way out of Tartarus. That's the problem with Gaia's progeny. They always find a way out and then they love to get into uh, the great metaphysical systems of father science and the metaphysical gods and disrupt them and attack them. And then we get our great dragon slayer myths and monster slayer myths that come out of this. So that, I mean, you can see this going all the way back into the great dragon slayer myths that really begin with the Greeks and the Hebrews simultaneously sensing this, that these earlier mythologies that have been displaced by the rise of the metaphysical age of father science always come back in some form as they do with Aeschylus with the Furies and uh, the trouble Aristes, and they have to build a temple to the Furies. They, the, a temple has to be given to them. They have to be put into the polosphere. If we're going to have this new polosphere of Athens, uh, governed by rationality, and Athena is the goddess of reason, and Zeus is the primary king, what do we do about the older myth cults that are still around that you know, grandma is still worshiping out in the courtyard uh, <laughs> that, that won't go away? So they're still there. And so the a little temple at least has to be built to miniaturize them endosymbiotically and put them on the inside of the new cellular matrix that's becoming the new thing, the polosphere governed by reason. That's where we're at now. Now, so if you take that model that the Greeks invented, now expand it to the planet, and you've got the same thing that we're doing now that the Greeks were doing with the city-state and the monsters that are escaping capture by the overcoating of genetic engineering and cloning and so forth come back in our narratives like in Jurassic Park as monsters and dinosaurs with their own sentience that won't go away and you can't stamp them out because you can't get rid of the biogenetic powers of the earth. It's that powerful and it's always going to outlast the phallic rise and fall of the constructions of father science with his cathedrals and eventually skyscrapers and rockets of course. It's all phallic and it's all temporally limited the, the powers of the nagas and the serpents and typhon are always going to outlast it because they're they're part of the earth 
And the Earth is going to be here long after civilization is gone, long after this human experiment is over with, we'll still be an Earth capable of creating new life forms. Yeah. I mean, a lot of people don't know this, but when you look at the extinction events, every time there's an extinction event, like the Permo-Triassic, which is the, the archetype that killed 96 or 7% of all life on the planet, and then right after that, you get the Triassic speciation with all these new forms coming in, the proto-dinosaurs just start filing on stage and you get this massive speciation. The same thing happens, I think, at the Jurassic-Cretaceous boundary. There's another extinction event followed by speciation. The same thing after the dinosaurs are wiped out, you get the speciation of all these bizarre, amazing new mammals that a lot of people don't know about. They're just these gigantic mammals. The, the largest mammals that have ever existed came into being after the dinosaurs were wiped out. They were just huge. So there's this wonderful power that the earth has to survive catastrophes and then come back with renewed and redoubled force to create new forms. I mean, it's wonderful. It's amazing. It's, it's astonishing, the power of the earth. Yeah. So I was just out in your neighborhood at Arcosanti last week. And for those who do not know, Arcosanti is a an experimental architectural hub just north of Phoenix, where this architect Paolo Soleri, who is a student of Frank Lloyd Wright, decided he wanted to investigate what it would be like to build an architectural ecosystem that he would bring architecture and ecology together into arcology in a postcar civilization where you live and work in the same space and it fosters community and it's it's much more integrated passively heated and cooled and one of the things looking through his sketchbooks in the gift shop of arcosanti one of the things that stuck with me was that he saw the movement past what we think of as a three-dimensional city which is actually a bunch of above ground silos these individual phalluses sticking up and he saw the emergence of a network of breezeways and and walkways and bridges, a webbing together and uh, forming into an actual three-dimensional structure. So to me, that speaks to uh, Matthew Fox and his writing talks about the return of the Black Madonna and the reappearance and the uh, the heightened significance of this dark Earth Mother aspect in the modern age that the archetype. Uh, a figure that's that's associated with the repressed, you know, marginalized peoples, and you know, we see that going on in in the news pretty much every day now. The you know, the repressed peoples finding their voice through this horizontal growth of this, you know, it's frequently compared to the growth of a mycelial network. So there is a uh, a sense in which <laughs> this fallen, aramonic, bastardized techno structure is also weirdly, paradoxically returning to us this appreciation for the messy, earthy, fleshy, biological, fringe, anomalous realities of our situation. And it, maybe we can see it like showing up in things like, like maybe our Temple to the Furies is our inclusion of engineered randomness into the growing of artificial intelligences and the the setting of cryptographic keys i don't know it's it does seem like there's a there's a sense in which we understand that noise is now critical to the continuation of the project and and maybe we're welcoming tiamat back in i don't know where do you see all this going i'm always skeptical of utopian projects because they almost always fail in fact i can't think of too many successful ones in history uh maybe salt lake city i don't know Beyond that, going back to the very first utopia, which was Ignatans, the pharaoh Ignatan is, as far as we know, as far as I know, the first person on record 
he rebelled against the Theban priesthood and their worship of the god Amun as something that he didn't want. He wanted to go back to the original gods that he thought Atun, the, the sun disk, all the other gods were manifestations of this Apollonian sun disk. And he wanted to, he too, though, he's already prefiguring the age of Apollonian father science insofar as he wishes, he wants to get rid of all the mortuary deities. And so the Dionysiac component of Egyptian religion was anathematized by him. This includes all the cults of Osiris, anything ha that the sun would encounter after it went on its journey underneath the earth. He wasn't interested in that half. He just wanted this transcendent light world. So he left all the roofs up the top of all the temples, much to the consternation of visiting nobles from the Middle East who would come in and have to sit out in 120 degree temperatures roasting uh, to get an audience with him. They really hated it. But he sort of liked that. And this was his utopian experiment. He, he left Thebes, went south along the Nile and found a good spot to create the world's first utopian experiment. This, the city of Akaratun, or Amarna, as it's also known. And it created these little suburbs, tried to eliminate the poor. Nobody was poor. There was no sort of underclasses. Everybody was sort of at the same wage level. He built the first wide streets, very wide to accommodate chariots now, two-wheeled chariots, because he never went anywhere without this new automobile, this new hot rod that he had, the two-wheeled horse-drawn chariot, which was introduced to the Egyptians by the Hexos. They hadn't had any use for the wheel until the Hyksos con conquered them, and they realized that there's a key inverse relation between, as Paul Virilio, the French theoretician, remarks, between speed and power, speed and conquest. There's an acceleration principle that leads to enabling and making conquest easier. So the Egyptians learned that lesson. And Ignaton tried to build all this into his utopia of the sun god, and it only lasted 13 years. And after that, uh, the speculation is that a plague entered the city and killed off most of the population, including Ignaton and his court, and wiped it out. And uh, I think, you know, that sets the sort of precedent for almost all utopias. They all, you know, intentional cities that are planned by the frontal lobe of the human brain, there again, involve trying to take over the natural powers that authentic cities come out of, which is just the slow drift across topological spaces of human beings and their messiness, but they're rooted in the soil and you get cities like Athens, Jerusalem, Rome, Vienna, places like this that come organically into being and they last for a very, very long time precisely because they weren't planned communities. Planned communities brings in the intellect and you, it's totally artificial. Its constructions are artificial, like Disney's idea to build Epcot City. He, he literally wanted to build a city underneath a glass dome and eliminate the automobile and eliminate crime and poverty, apparently not thinking about the, the greenhouse effect of the glass dome. <laughs> uh, these guys don't think about things like this. They, they fall in love with a, a transcendent idea that implants into their brains a vision, and they follow the vision without thinking about what the consequences might be. And we've got, of course, experiments like Brasilia and places like this. And also Henry Ford went into uh, the jungles of the Amazon to try to build a miniature city called Fordlandia, where he was exporting automobiles and American pop to the Amazon. That failed too. So I'm always, I'm interested to hear these little utopian projects because after all, we're going to need them. The fact of the matter is that the civilization that we're in now has already hit its iceberg and its two hour time limit during which it will sink for sure has already passed. We're at the point where the, you can't reverse this now, that the, the hole has been torn in the side of the boat. And it's, as the character in James Cameron's film remarks, 
She's made of iron, sir, and I assure you that she will sink. <laughs> it's going <laughs> to happen. The laws of physics already tell you it's going to sink. There's no way to stop the melting of the glaciers at this point. It's irreversible. You can maybe put some Band-Aids on it, slow it down, unscrew a few light bulbs, put up some solar panels. That's all fine, but it's not going to reverse what's already the damage that's already been done. There's too much CO2 now in the atmosphere, and it's been put in too suddenly to reverse this process. It takes the Earth a long time to cycle down excess CO2. And if you look at the long record, the atmosphere and its relation to the Earth, the Earth doesn't seem to like CO2 all that much and seems to do everything it can to pump it down. As you look at the Earth over time, ice ages are an ideal environment for low CO2 levels. They get down below, well below 200 ppms, 180 ppms. The Earth likes that. She's very comfortable with that. But now we've pushed it for the first time in a million years, up over 300 ppms. We're at the 400 ppm mark now and rising. It's going to get to 500, 600 eventually. The glaciers are going to, you know, they're going to melt. So the experiment that we've created now with these world cities and their cosmopolitan interiors are going to sink. We know that the sea levels are going to rise and flood places like New York and Los Angeles and Miami, Bangladesh, New Orleans, Venice. They're all going to sink. That's It's a 100% certainty. We know this. So we, we are going to need alternative ideas for living. We're going to need ideas for sustainable communities. But those communities are going to have to be designed in such a way as to not only be self-sustaining, but they've got to take into account refugee populations, which are going to rise and rise and rise as these catastrophes along our coastal cities proliferate and shift populations inland, just like New Orleans did. It shifted refugee populations during Katrina as far west as out here in Phoenix. There were people taking up refuge out here in our big uh, Coliseum. So the inland populations are going to have to be designed in such a way that they can take in these refugees and build them in somehow, maybe as Europe has been doing with the Syrian refugees, just taking them in. But um, so I am skeptical of utopian experiments. I find them very entertaining. And I find utopian literature very entertaining, but it's always got a tragic flaw in it. Every time I sit down with one of these books uh, recounting it, it's always like the beginnings of a Greek tragedy. You know the guy is doomed as soon as Agamemnon pulls up and starts bragging about his deeds and gets out of his chariot with his inflated ego. You know the guy is in big trouble, and it's fun to watch. Yeah, as soon as you see the gun on screen, it will be fired. Yeah, yeah, like that's... Yeah, listening to this, you know, I can't help but think that, you know, you draw the comparison between (laughs) the the ancient Egyptian street widening project and Salt Lake City, which has famously wide streets. Actually, I think there was an episode, I think, of the 99% Invisible podcast talking about the design of those streets adhering to this sort of open space, Western American frontier integration into the weird modern transhumanist desert patriarchal thing of Joseph Smith in Mormonism. And so to juxtapose those projects and the Amazonian Fortlandia, you know, I was just at Arcosanti last week listening to Mark Lakeman of City Repair in Portland talking about how they've been handling things in Portlandia which is, I think, probably the most feminist city I've ever been in, and (laughs) noticed as early as 2005 that the city is full of winding, narrow roads and 
strange Female, one way yeah. situations. Yeah. It's a very feminine roadmap of the right. city. And I, so, you know, I think that's kind of more to what I'm speaking to in terms of, you know, finding a grounded, sensible, but like obviously somewhat improvised and certainly provisional utopia closer to like a Hakim Bay temporary autonomous zone where we accept that we are evolving with our environment and that we're not trying to match the ideal of a fixed subject or a, a, a like a fixed ideological object rather that we've you know that we render as an invisible environment and therefore take a subject and so like Mark Lakeman's work was all about uh, spearheading community efforts to get people to paint neighborhood intersections so that cars would slow down, so that the the community streets would become safer for children and and could be reclaimed from the age of the automobile into a commons. And I think that if we are to accommodate a vast population displacement through climate refugee crisis type situations, we may end up having to give up our streets in order to make room for <laughs> these pop-up communities. And I think that there is actually something in that about the enclosure of the commons being a literal rendering of these public spaces into deadly thoroughfares. And that, you know, that we slow down from this fixation on speed in order to focus more on meeting our neighbors. And, and that that's the way in which the resurgence of the, you know, these feminine values like intimacy and connection comes back through the literal reclamation of the grid that currently divides but could connect us. I don't know. Well, it'll be interesting to see what what unfolds here as the centuries unfold. Uh, But it's going to be, you know, a totally different five centuries from now. This civilization will be dead, done, and gone. So theoreticians like Oswald Spengler or Arnold Toynbee used to write about the morphology of a civilization. How does it work? Well, it it turns out that it it has an X-ray. If you shine an X-ray through it, it it has an anatomy. Civilization undergoes a a cycle. There's an early, deeply pious religious phase that brings all the forms into being in every case, whether it's Egypt with the pyramids or our civilization with the cathedrals or what have you. Then there's a, a phase where the intellect begins to come in and you get philosophy or new kinds of religions with new dogmatic ideologies, as in the case of the Egyptians who didn't have philosophy. And then eventually there there comes a period where the culture phase that's motivated by art and wonder and metaphysics shifts over into the building of an empire. So as you get with the Egyptians after they are conquered by the Hyksos and they expel the Hyksos, the brothers Amoza and Kamoza expel them, send them back to the Middle East, and then uh, they chase them and create, as we have done today on the turn of the spiral again, create a new world of ecumeny by conquering the Middle East, which the Egyptians did all the way up to the Hittites, where they stopped and made a treaty because they couldn't conquer the Hittites. But they did create this new kingdom, and it's called the New Kingdom, built out of this empire that was the response to their conquest by the Hyksos. Ignaton was the one who let it go, but because he wasn't interested in empire, he was strictly interested in religion and metaphysics, and he had a dreamy temperament, so he let it go. And it was very difficult. It never really recovered after his reign. But it turns out that civilization has this morphology where once you get into the empire building phase, the metaphysics as the motivating principle shifts over to pragmatism and economics and dealing with very large, uprooted urban world populations. It's always multi-ethnic and starts drawing people in 
from all quarters who have lost. Uh, many of them might be soldiers who have been sent to, into battle and come home to find they don't have any homes. You get all these uprooted populations then streaming into these cities looking for work and they become mobs. And if they can't find work, then you get social revolutions. All this can be tracked. So civilization has a distinct morphology to it. In most civilizations, this imperial phase, once it's achieved, tends to last for a very long time, for centuries. And it puts the society in a state of kind of petrifaction. The forms become frozen, and they have to be for it to become manageable, usually by dictators. In the case of the Roman Empire, though, uh, it was only four centuries. So they create an empire that only lasts four centuries, whereas the Chinese went on forever. The Hindus, after Ashoka, went on forever. So why didn't the, the Romans do this? And it was because the Germanic barbarians came in, crossed the Rhine, and flooded in and dismantled the place. I think, too, that we're in a similar period of building the empire phase of our northwestern civilization, a role which the Americans seem to be the ones most equipped to fulfill as the neo-Romans on the turn of the spiral. But whatever world ecumeny uh, gets created um, here out of the American empire, its duration is limited by the fact that we know that in five centuries, all the ice is going to melt. And so whatever it, it's limited, it's got a, it's already got a five century limit for its lifespan. It can't go past that because of all the flooding of all the cities, capital cities like D.C. are going to be underwater in New York. So what are going to be the capital cities of this new empire? They'll have to shift and move inland and populations will have to migrate to northern latitudes like Canada, Siberia, Greenland after the ice melts. That'll be prime real estate there after the ice melts. And then so I envisioned in my book, The Age of Catastrophe, then it would seem then that the Arctic Rim might become the basis for a new uh, Arctic Rim civilization at some point in the future after this neo-American empire passes as all the ecological crises ever worsening hurricanes, volcanoes and earthquakes and rising sea levels and global temperatures have already built in its limit point. So there's limits to growth there. It's very definite. So. What are we going to do after this? That, that becomes an interesting question as, as we have to migrate to cooler latitudes. That should be interesting to see what, how these – there are already cultures lining the Arctic going way back into the Paleolithic. That zone, Joseph Campbell used to like to analyze this zone in, in his books, is the shaman zone. It's the zone going all the way around the Arctic Rim, Greenland and, and Baffin Bay and uh, North Canada, all these places – they all have Native Americans and Eskimos going around and Siberian tribes like the Chukchi and the Yakuts. They all have a similar worldview. They're all shamanistic. Uh, they're all hunters and shamans. And that's the basis already for the earliest sedimentary layer of that civilization that might form on top of that. Every civilization now is a sediment that forms on top of the sediment of a previous stratum just as we built everything here in America on top of the earlier stratum of the Native American stratum. Um, so, so do you think that it's actually adaptive to move into a more, what do you call it like shamanistic in a sloppy way view? You know, like, like again, Eric Davis talks about neo-animism in an age of, you know, responsive and artificially intelligent internet connected devices and how, you know, all of this stuff is sort of um, sitting there psychologically for us to just slide or step back into it. And so, I mean, what do you see as the 
transitional structures that are going to help us as cultures on like a individual local regional basis how do you imagine people making sense of this transition in a way that's not just utter chaos and mayhem and bewilderment and confusion i mean like i was saying before a lot of it depends on what the french call sign regimes which are simply uh, collections of signifiers of, of a particular cultural phase space they're always built one on top of the other and the shamanistic sign regime is the oldest for the Arctic Rim. And it leaks down the coast, though, down the Pacific uh, Northwest, down into California. And I don't think it's an accident that science fiction that came out of California with Philip K. Dick in particular is essentially shamanistic. With, with Philip K. Dick, we, we get this idea that the soul sends avatars forth into virtual realities. So he was like the pioneer of what now we take for granted with films like James Cameron's Avatar and so forth and our projection of our avatars into cyberspace. Philip K. Dick was already on top of this. But if you look at uh, the literature and science fiction that's produced out of the West Coast, whether it's from the films of David Lynch, you know, who grew up in Washington, or uh, Philip K. Dick or Frank Herbert's Dune novels, it, it is all very shamanistic. It, it very much has the sense of the soul leaving the body and entering into an astral plane where it encounters entities. This is true from William Gibson's Neuromancer up in Vancouver, all the way down the coast. So you've got the wonderful thing about new cultures when they come in, like the Christianization by the Spanish of the Native Americans, is that eventually it's always only a matter of time before the earlier structures, the earlier myths, the earlier gods, worm their way up tectonically into the surface level structures and begin to crumble the surface level structures. You know, we're already seeing this, as I've remarked many times, with our superheroes. They are Native American characters that are thrusting back up. Uh, Batman is a Native American character. You can even see the, the mask of God from uh, Oaxaca, I think it is. Uh, looks, it's a Mayan background. It looks identical to the Bob Kane Batman. Wolverine was another Native American character. The Sandman is a Native American. It's a, he's a villain, but he's a Native American. Spider-Man and Spider-Woman. You know, they're weird, all coming out of Weird nerd, uh, nerd aside here that... In the original Batman versus Aliens crossover comic book, Batman goes down to Central America to investigate a mysterious beacon that turns out to be a crashed spaceship underneath a Mayan temple. So you get, it's almost like uh, they're writing the it for us. They're writing, the, <laughs> you get Giger's Alien and the Mayan Batman harmonic in the same work there. Yeah, that's wonderful. That's what I like about pop culture. Snobs deride it, but I've always seen it as a gold mine because it's so naive. People just, they don't care about what you're supposed to do or not supposed to do. They just spin out these myths and they invariably have something interesting to say about our contemporary predicament. That's why I've taken pop culture seriously uh, through my entire career. Well, this is awesome. We're coming up on an hour. So I want to, uh, before we close out, I want to give you the opportunity to indulge in the play of this podcast's framing and consider if you were to leave a message, if this recording is to end up in some sort of archaeological dig site in the future, let me just indulge the conceit that we have something important to contribute to that future. We know that archaeologists love the trash pile also. So, you know, it's like whatever you care to, to pass down to them, what would you say? I would say uh, <clears throat> don't mess with Mother Nature, <laughs> like the old television commercial uh, that I grew up with uh, don't, uh, you know, leave her alone uh, because it's, you're not going to win. It's, you're, it's on a serious note. There needs to be some way 
of incorporating the nature cults. The Native American religions are great for this because the cool thing about them is that they're rooted in the landscape. As Joseph Campbell used to always say, they're, they're rooted in the landscape. There's no ontological separation between being and becoming, as there is in Plato or the Old Testament or with the Gnostics. Being is becoming, and uh, there's nothing in the land that isn't sacred or holy. Every animal, every tree, every rock, every stone is all sacred and holy, and it's something that should be built in, not paved over. So if they can find some way to, to do that, to integrate the earlier, the Nagas and the serpents and the Furies, build temples to them and give them their due, because otherwise they'll, they'll tear down what you build up if you don't give them their due anyway. So I would keep that in mind for any future endeavors. Maybe on September 17th, we can have an anti-St. Patrick's Day where we, we invite <laughs> all the snakes back into the city. That's perfect. Yep. <laughs> John, it's been such a pleasure. Thank you so much for being on the show. Where can people find you and contribute to the success of your work? You can always friend me on Facebook. There's that. And then uh, you can type in my name on YouTube and a thousand and one videos will come up. Or you can buy my books on Amazon.com. Again, just type in my name. And, and I do have a website also called cinemadiscourse.com where I review movies and try to find the gold, these kinds of metaphysical nuggets. So those would be the, the primary sources for my stuff. Awesome. Thanks so much, man. Okay, thank you, Michael. It's been a blast. Thanks again for listening. I hope you enjoyed that episode as much as I did. Future Fossils is part of the MindPod network, along with Third Eye Drops, The Astral Hustle, Synchronicity Podcast, and an oodle of other fascinating programs. I encourage you to go to mindpodnetwork.com and subscribe to them all. And stay tuned because we have some awesome episodes coming up on future fossils. So stick around and have a most excellent eon. <laughs>